This fall, I've been teaching a 13-week world religions class to undergraduates at Frederick Community College, and their final papers are due tonight at midnight. Don't you wish you were in that, in that class? Uh, last week for our final session, we revisited the three major themes that as we've gone to all these different religions, these three themes have been woven throughout. And I'd like to briefly share those with you to help set the stage for our exploration of the time period that came after the historical Jesus, but before Christianity. Because it's a, a more complex story than Jesus came to found Christianity. He didn't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> The three major themes that were woven throughout my students' 13-week journey through the world's religions are that definitions matter. Two, original diversity. And three, responses matter. I'll, I'll say more about each. And since our focus is the Christian tradition, I'll be using that uh, for, as the example for all three. But we could e examine each of the world's religions, as well as many other things in our world, through these same lenses and find similar results. Because as it turns out, although it very much matters, different cultures do shape things differently, it also matters that human beings are in all those cultures and also have some similar ways that they behave individually and in groups. So the first, definitions matter. Who decides what Christianity means? Who decides who Jesus was? Who controls which part of the traditions are emphasized and which are neglected or suppressed or literally buried with the Nag Hammadi Gospels to later be dug up? Though I actually think those were probably buried to keep them from being burned. You know, so that, that was actually kind of buried in a, in a good way to save them. And crucially, who benefits and who loses out as a consequences of these definitions? Definitions aren't neutral things. As, you, as you've heard me quote before, if you're not at the table, you might be on the menu. You know, as, as Hamilton, the musical, taught us, it matters if you're in the room where it happens, right? Definitions matter, and how religions are defined is never purely an impartial process, whatever that would even mean to be a fully impartial process. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. Definitions you know, happen in particular and peculiar places. And often definitions are a function or always a function of imbalanced relationships that typically favor the powerful over historically oppressed groups. So definitions matter. Second, original diversity. Often students sign up for a world religions class because they're interested in studying the differences between the different world religions. And that's one good approach, and we do that. However, an equally valuable task is to notice that there is tremendous diversity within each religious tradition. And often, like the more conservative aspects of one tradition might have more in common, at least sociologically, with the conservative aspects of other, other religions than they do with more liberal or progressive members of their own, and, and vice versa. Like, we have much more in common with Reformed Judaism and the United Church of Christ than we do with, like, you know, so it's like, just, you know, notice that. That's important to notice, diversity within the world's religions. There has never been one monolithic Christianity. There has always been Christianities, plural. And if we look around the world today, just think about the differences, you know, the, the intent 
the aesthetics, just the whole vibe between going to a Roman Catholic mass at the Vatican, going to an evangelical megachurch in Texas, going to a simple Amish Sunday service in Pennsylvania, going to a liberal progressive Christian congregation in Manhattan, going to a snake handling church in Appalachia, going to a base community in Brazil that is grounded in Latin American liberation theology. I could go on with many more examples, but my point is if you zoom out to consider all the different types of Christianities in the world today, one might question just there to what extent it even makes sense to call all those diverse examples the same religion. And one can make a similar breakdown of all the Hinduisms, all the Buddhisms, all the Judaisms, the Islams, the paganisms, and more. There's immense diversity, not only between the world's religions, but immense diversity within each tradition. And if we turn back the clock, we find that in all the world's religions, there is diversity, diversity, messiness, and competition over power and control and who gets to determine various meanings and interpretations that go back to the very beginning. And also, and I'll say more about this later, you also see that founders didn't just say one thing. Like they also, they, they, they said different things over a different time were evolving and changing and growing and learning themselves. The third piece, so definitions matter, original diversity, and responses matter. Given that diversity that we've just outlined, there are real consequential choices to be made of where one aligns oneself. And I encourage my students, whether they're whatever flavor of religion or non-religion, to take responsibility of their choices. And I particularly like the framing of the interfaith activist Ibu Patel, who says, you need to be accountable for whether you are, for the most part, helping create bubbles, barriers, bombs, or bridges. You know, are you creating bubbles, just deciding, we're just going to go off, think of the Amish. We're just going to go over and be separate, just have our little bubble and be pure and whatever. That's one way. Are we creating barriers? We're out in the world, but we're setting a lot of boundaries to keep other people from intermixing with us too much. Uh, keep the other out or away. Or are we making bombs? We're just going to destroy the other. <laughs> you know, then we don't have to worry about them. So bubbles, barriers, bombs, or are we trying to build bridges? And that doesn't mean we all have to just be together and sing kumbaya and pretend like there aren't differences, but are we at least building bridges where we can get over, talk to the other people, get to know them, and then maybe go back to our, you know, are we building bridges? Bubbles, barriers, bombs, or bridges? Now, in contrast to the way of approaching his, the history of religion that we've been exploring for the last few minutes, there's a different approach that's often employed by orthodox traditions who are trying to you know, give you the, the one true way. This version of history attempts to tell the particular perspective as the one exclusively true version from which all other views are deemed to be heretical deviations. Religion scholars call this a master narrative, an attempt to tell a story that dominates and controls and subsumes uh, all alternative versions of the story. Now, again, we're going to continue to use Christianity as our case study for our focus, although, again, we could do the same for all the world's religions. So there's one way of telling the story of Christianity that focuses on the Apostle Peter as the heir apparent to the historical Jesus, and that Peter then passed the so-called one true gospel on to Linus, the second pope, and so on in an unbroken line of apostolic secession, which is really complicated if you've ever studied you know, medieval history, uh, and so on down to the unbroken line all the way down to Jorge Bergliono today, known as Pope Francis, the 266th pope, according to the traditional reckoning. 
Now, if you read the Gospel of John, however, it turns out that according to the Gospel of John, John, the beloved disciple, was actually the favored uh, disciple of Jesus. But if you read the book of James, turns out it was James, <laughs> you know, Jesus's brother, who was the primary leader after Jesus's death, setting up in Jerusalem. Likewise for Paul's letters. Shockingly, Paul turns out to be the most, he even calls himself a super apostle, right? Uh, and the same for the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Mary. There it turns out that Thomas or Mary, you know, turns out to be the most important one. If you try to adjudicate between these competing claims of authority, a question can arise in the words of the historical Jesus scholar John Dominic Crossan. Just how many years was Easter Sunday? And you're like, wait, wasn't Easter Sunday just a day? Like, no, how many years was Easter Sunday? What he means is that the traditions around what happened after Jesus' death, what happened, how we tell that story, how we understand it, it was not just one story of one morning told and retold in unchanging ways until today. Indeed, if you just look at the four canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they disagree in all manner of details about that, like about that story if you um, compare them out. These traditions were years in the making. This is true both for the date of Easter, which seems to have not been set until a full century after Jesus' death, and for the stories about Jesus' appearance after his death, which were formed in the telling and the retelling as his various followers struggled to make sense of his death, which was, I mean, to just use one word, was incredibly traumatic. And these are people that were incredibly traumatized. You know, their leader was killed by Roman state execution like, and, and wrestling with that. These stories were told in different ways by different communities that gathered around Peter and James and John and Mary and others and Thomas and other competing leaders in that first generation following Jesus' crucifixion. The Harvard historian of religion, Karen King, puts it this way in her book, The Gospel of Mary Magdala. The beginning is often portrayed as this ideal to which Christianity should aspire and conform. We need to go back and conform to how it allegedly was. Here, Jesus spoke to his disciples, and the gospel was preached in truth. The churches were formed in the power of the Spirit, and Christians lived in unity and love with one another. Even though if you read the story, it tells it from the very beginning that they, it was, they fought amongst one another, right? And they didn't live in simple simplicity, even though there were also some beautiful things happening. She says, but what if it, as it turns out, it seems to be, what if the beginning was a time of grappling, and experimentation? What if the meaning of the gospel was not clear and Christians struggled to understand who Jesus was? Remember the three themes with which we began. Definitions matter. Who gets to decide what Christianity means and who Jesus was? Who benefits? Who loses out? There was original diversity, not one right true way. And our responses matter of which parts of the story we choose to valorize and which we deprecate. I've been thinking about these matters recently as I've been reading a new book that was published a little more than a month ago titled After Jesus Before Christianity, a historical exploration of the first two centuries of the Jesus movements, plural. It's by the Westar Institute. Some of you may remember the Westar Institute during the, the name they were known as during the 1990s and the 1980s actually is when they were founded, uh, the Jesus Seminar. The 1990s is when they were making a lot of headlines. The most famously, they made the claim that there's actually a pretty good argument for that I'm glad to talk about another time. I'm, I'm really going to have to restrain myself. I have so much to say about this topic that I'm definitely going to watch how many tangents I go on. But anyway, the claim that they made that got all the headlines was that he only said about 20% of what was attributed to him in the Bible. 
Since then, the Westar Institute has continued its work. They had the Acts Seminar on the Acts of the Apostle, the Paul Seminar on the Apostle Paul, the God Seminar on contemporary explorations of what is it that we mean by this word, God. Their latest focus is the Christianity Seminar on the time between the life of the historical Jesus and the conceptualization of a religion called Christianity. As it turns out, neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor any of those other early leaders mentioned earlier would have understood themselves to be Christians. That's not what they would have called themselves. That term came later. But today, in retrospect, it can be really difficult not to apply it anachronistically because it's the term that won out. It's just really hard to understand kind of how it was in that time. So in 2010, I really started thinking about Pamela Eisenbaum, who's a wonderful Jewish scholar of the New Testament. I, I love Jewish scholars of the New Testament tend to bring this interesting perspective. She wrote a really interesting book called Why Paul Was Not a Christian, you know, because that's just not how Paul would have understood himself. Uh, and there's, ah, there's so many other things I'd love to do. I'll just very, very brief, briefly tell you. So much of like how we read the Apostle Paul, we read, we do, it's hard to read what Paul wrote, even if we're reading the words, because we read the words Paul wrote. We're so influenced, even if you don't even know you are, we're influenced by how Luther read Augustine's reading of Paul. So like, it's, it's so hard not to read Paul and not be influenced by the way Luther read Augustine's interpretation of Paul. <laughs> like, it's just difficult. And if you really learn to read Paul, you will see that most people read Paul in a way that is much more wooden than the way Paul actually read what was the Bible for him. So for Paul, the Bible was the Torah and the prophets, because at the time of Paul, the Jewish Bible wasn't even finished. And he was just starting to write what would become the New Testament, like a century, you know, a few centuries after him. Paul if you look at how he read the Torah and the prophets, it was very spirit-infused, very free. And then people turn around and read Paul in this very wooden, literal way that doesn't have that same freedom. And, and uh, anyway, it's very interesting. So this call to beware of anachronisms is similar to our, ex our, explanation, our explorations a few weeks ago around the history of Thanksgiving which is also much messier and more complicated than this single unbroken tradition you know, of 400 years. It's just more complicated than that. In two weeks, we're gonna explore a similar dynamic um, around Buddhism. For now, in regard to Christianity and the early decades following the death of the historical Jesus, not only did Jesus have no intention of founding a religion called Christianity, the use of that term Christian was extremely rare with no uncertain occurrence, with no certain occurrence in the first century. It's really kind of a early second century word, which just seems bizarre, but if you go back, that's, that's what the evidence shows us. If we look at all 27 books of the Christian New Testament, we might think, well, the word Christian, it must be like all over the place, right? It's in three places. It's only in three places. Twice in the book of Acts, once in the book of 1 Peter. Moreover, it's not clear that that contemporary word Christian is actually the most helpful translation of even those particular instances, because it just, that has all this baggage that it's, the word Christian has come to mean sort of what it meant in the third and fourth century. It's not really representative of the first century, the 100s and the 200s, as about certain creedal claims about theology. That word Christianos in Greek had the sense of basically of asking, were you, are you associated with this man named Jesus who was known as the anointed? 
Because, of course, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, right? Jesus of Nazareth. It's a title, right? And it was applied to a lot of people. Like, so Christ is just the Greek version of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah, which means anointed one. And so kings were anointed. I mean, look at King Cyrus of Persia, the one who came to power in Persia, which is ancient Iran, and sent the Jews back from the Babylonian exile. That dude was called a Messiah. Like, so, I mean, it's, it's someone who sort of, act, you know, do, anointed, doing God's work in the world. There's an additional related Latin word called Christianus that was in a lat letter written by a Roman magistrate named Pliny the Younger that has similar connotations. So the first important point is that word often translated Christian in the Bible and from this one extra biblical account is surprisingly rare. Three times in the Bible, one time outside the Bible really early. And the second important point is that all four of these references are not from the first century. They're likely from the early second century, the early 100s, or maybe even as late as 150. It's hard to say approximately a century or more after the life of the historical Jesus, because both Acts and both First Peter are fairly late New Testament documents. So again, very, very quickly, so the life of the historical Jesus, so if you think about this arc, we don't even know the year Jesus died. He died somewhere between 27 and 30. It, it is hard to overemphasize the fact that Jesus was a Mediterranean Jewish peasant. He was an incredibly obscure figure at the time, and all the more remarkable that we're still talking about him today. But still, we don't even know the year that he died. You know, it was Passover within this three-year period. That's how obscure we're talking about. And keep in mind, think about if something happened in 1927 or 1930, and nobody wrote about it for two decades. Because remember, Paul's not Paul's the fir the very first chronological book of the Old Test of the New Testament is First uh, Thessalonians. It's Paul, right? The all the first books are Paul. Uh, all in the 50s, culminating with Romans in the 60s. So you think about nothing got written for two decades, all the 30s and the 40s, and then in 1950, we, the equivalent, we get a, a decade of this dude who never met Jesus. Now, he would say he met the resurrected Christ on the Damascus Road, but he never met the historical Jesus, is writing about him. And then the Gospels aren't written until the 1970s, right? The equivalent of something happened in 1930. Mark in the 70s, Matthew and Luke in the 80s, John in the 90s, and, you know, Ah, there's so much I'd like to say. You know, 90% of John is unique to John, right? John's doing theology, very clearly, not history. And so then you get in the 100s, the Acts and 1 Peter, and all the way until 2 Peter, probably the last chronologically. So it's helpful to keep in mind that there wasn't a New Testament in the first two centuries. These documents are being written, but there's not, they weren't known as the New Testament. Instead, this anthology was being written you know, in a wide variety of other documents, uh, some of which were included in the canon, some of which weren't, weren't. If you want to know more of the details about this, Bart Ehrman has written a wonderful book called Lost Christianities, The Battles for Scripture and the Faith We Never Knew. Um, you know, it's not until, it's actually the fourth century, it's, it's th the year 367 is when this dude named Athanasius wrote a list that includes the 27 books we've come to think of as the New Testament in, in the order that we know them. But he was actually just speaking, he was just Bishop of Alexandria. He wasn't, no one could speak for all of, all the people who were seeking to follow Jesus. So it's just important to keep in mind here how things are, there's just all this competition and things that they really weren't inevitable. Earliest followers of Jesus called themselves a whole wide variety of things. And just in general, it would be, again, hard to overemphasize how much more local and regional everything was then 
than things are today. They didn't have TV and the internet and car. They didn't have fast speed and instantaneous communication and easy print writing to, to help uniformity. Few people in these early movements could read and write. Literacy was minimal. Most people at the time were talking about subsistence farmers, weavers, other artisans, day laborers, merchants. Now, there were a few wealthy followers of, of Jesus, but and even fewer, though, were authors. Fewer wealthy, even fewer were authors. You know, some people might be able to do kind of minimal market, you know, just kind of a few things to get by in the marketplace, but not enough to, like, write a, write a gospel. Um, so it's just, so what was going early on were just telling, you know, passing on this oral tradition of these, these pithy sayings and these, these little bits of stories and gathering in small dispersed groups, usually in homes to share meals. It was only later, you know, hundreds of years later that you had public churches and professional priestly class and, and all of that. Again, there's so much more to say about this. So let me just boil it down to, uh, for me, what have become some touchstones in, or, in understanding this time period after Jesus and before Christianity. The first is that Jesus's life, words, and deeds, they all meant more than one thing. They're just not some simplistic, literal thing. And that also, that like, let me take just one example, the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is only in Luke. That's, that's 200 words. It would take like two minutes or less to tell that. That is not how Jesus would have told that story. He would have told it more than once. He probably would have taken 20 minutes to tell it. It's not like people had Netflix to get home to. Like, I mean, these stories, like it, so we, what we have, we have written down are not court transcripts, so these little, little nubs of what comes to us in oral tradition. It just would have been much, people would, Jesus would have told these stories different ways. They would have evolved. That's how oral tradition works. There was no simple heir apparent, and it's um, and and here's the other thing. I mean, that we can own as modern UUs. Even if Jesus did intend one true way and one heir apparent, which I don't think he did, but even if he did, I just disagree with that. It was that was a bad call. Like if that were the case, we can disagree with the founders of religion and do something different. We're not limited to how it used to be. And this is an even more important point that I, I first started to really get in seminary and when I was reading a lot of feminist um, scholars, it's always been about more than one individual male. Like we just spent so much time as human beings fetishizing the identity of this one male. And even for Jesus, it was really not about him. It was about the kingdom of God, which we've come to call the beloved community. Like it's just, it's just not about one dude. It's about this larger movement. It's about this larger community. And finally, again, this is basically what I said earlier, that earliest isn't always best. It's not that, that's this Protestant impulse, this idea that it was pure in the beginning and we just need to get back to the pure. And there's, there's some, some truth to that, to letting go of corruptions, but don't miss the way there really has been good things discovered in the 2,000 years of Christian tradition, you know, post-Jesus. And we need to, that it's, it's a both and. It's, you know, getting that stuff that was really good at the beginning and may have gotten corrupted, but also not missing all the... John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, St. Francis, like all this great stuff through, through history. Don't miss that. And so, I, so I'll, I'll move toward my conclusion by quoting two of those feminist scholars. The first is Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenza, um, and she invites us to consider that there has always been, there's always already been this just ongoing struggle um, for equality and community over against domination and control. And actually, I think you see that in, in Jesus himself. 
that struggle of equality and community over domination and control. We see it all the way through Christian history. And so Melanie Johnson de Favre, a student of Schusler Fiorenza, similarly argues that if the way someone is teaching and practicing the Christian tradition, if it contributes to the liberation and the dignity of all people, we should celebrate it and support it, whether or not we identify with the Christian tradition or not. Uh, and conversely, if someone is teaching and practicing Christianity and it's contributing to greater domination and control, especially of individual women over men and other historically oppressed groups, then we should oppose it, as the, the prophetic people going back to the Hebrew prophets always did. If you're interested in more about that, about what that, the Christian tradition does look like today, what it can look like, uh, the, again, that UU Christian group is meeting on Sundays at noon to study the, the, work, the final book of John Shelby Spong. For now, I'll conclude by just revisiting those, those themes that we began with. The first is that definitions matter. We do not have to limit our understandings of Jesus and the Christian tradition to one exclusive meaning, especially if we are the people that represent us and our concerns were not in the room where it happened. We don't have to limit ourselves to that. We don't have to, if we weren't at the table, we don't have to allow ourselves to be on the menu. We can set our own table, come to our own conclusion, and widen our circle of inclusion to invite as diverse a set of people as possible to dine with us at our table. And I would argue that's actually what Jesus would do and did. Original diversity. Debates about the historical Jesus will never be settled once and for all. John Dominic Crossan that I, I, I commented earlier, he actually calls it a huge embarrassment that all these incredibly smart people study this stuff in good faith and come to such widely different conclusions about who Jesus was. So we're never going to settle that once and for all. Too many smart people have tried. Regardless, the point was always much more than about the identity of one individual male. The point was always about what Jesus called the kingdom of God, what Dr. King taught us to call the beloved community, which is a more inclusive and this-worldly name for the same work. And finally, responses matter. Regardless of what did happen or what didn't happen 2,000 years ago, what matters more is whether we choose to seek justice, mercy, reconciliation, kindness, compassion, and love right here and right now. And I'm grateful to be with you all on that journey. For now, as we continue to wrestle with the legacy of what came after Jesus and before Christianity, let us listen to our musical response. O oh, young and fearless prophet.